past week was Vacation Bible School, and uh, we had a good week. And our theme uh, talked about the Lord and His greatness. And uh, so I'm going to depart from the series on uh, Genesis for a little while, probably until after Bible camp. But I want to bring this message this morning because it talks about the God that we discovered, we, we studied about during Bible school. And uh, I enjoyed preparing this message, and the title of it is, Our Awesome God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 10, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the privilege to talk about you. We know, Lord, you're an awesome God, and I pray that we might see that from the word today. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this subject and in some way uh, glean the depths of it. We know, Lord, that it's impossible to fully understand you because you are God and we're created by you. But, Lord, give us an understanding today of some of your greatness as we talk about you. I pray that if there's anyone here who has never put their faith and trust in you as their Savior, that they would do that today. For us as Christians, forgive us, Lord, for sometimes being... Uh, falling in love with the world and the things of the world and not being awestruck by you. I pray, Lord, that you might change that in our hearts today and we might see how great you are and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting of our text this morning is when David, the king of Israel, was close to death. He wasn't going to live too long after that. He had desired to build the temple of God, but the Lord did not allow him to do so. It was God's will for his son Solomon to build it instead of for David. But God did permit David to gather together the the things that were necessary for the building of this magnificent temple. Now, God cannot be localized in a temple. We know that. You can't put God in a test tube. You can't put God in a temple. And you can't put God in a country. You can't put him anywhere because he made everything. He's far greater than that. But the temple was a place to honor the Lord. And it was a place where the glory of the Lord could come and dwell so that men could come and worship him at that temple. As David gathered the materials together for the temple... He brought silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and onyx stones and all manner of precious stones of different colors and large marble stones. We're told this in verses 3 to 5. And uh, rather before that, the first part of the passage. 
And also, in addition to what his servants gathered, in other words, David said, let's gather these things, and they went out and gathered them. In addition to that, David also gave his own silver and his own gold, and he gave 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. That's found in verses 3 to 5. Then the princes, the captains, and the rulers among Israel offered willingly of their gold, so this is an addition, their gold and their silver and their brass and iron and precious stones, and they brought in five, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams of gold, uh, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brass, 100,000 talents of iron, and many precious stones. Then it seems from verse 9 that the common people also brought in their offering and gave to the Lord. It doesn't tell us how much that was. Now, all that was a great gathering of wealth. I figured last night as I was studying and preparing the message yesterday, last night I decided to figure up from yesterday's prices on the market how much this was worth. Now, you can find on the, on, online how much silver is, or gold is worth that day and silver is worth that day and brass and iron. Now, the, the figure I used for iron was scrap iron, <laughs> but, so it's probably more than that. But I figured it up with all the things that were the details that were given here, and here's what it came up to value of. 17 billion, 636 million, $389,861. Now, this does not include all the precious stones because their, their amount of stones is not given and we don't know exactly what stones they were. It doesn't include the wood and today's price of the wood would make it really valuable. And it doesn't include the marble and it does not include the, what, what was gathered before David gave his own um, it wasn't included. The, the, the um, princes and captains and rulers, they also gave, but it doesn't include the amount of the common people, what they gave. So before David and the princes and the, and the captains gave their amount, there was a, mu- a bunch of other gathered in. It doesn't tell us that. And it doesn't tell us how much the common people gave. So it was a huge amount. But after all this wealth was gathered, David did not stand in awe of the wealth. What he observed, he observed was the tremendous treasure, the tremendous value of the gold, the silver, brass, iron, precious stones, wood, and marble. But he did not say what we would say. He did not say, wow, look at all that gold. Or wow, look at all that silver. Or, wow, I never thought I'd see this many diamonds and this many rubies at one time. He didn't say that. He said, wow, God, you are awesome. Well, he didn't exactly say that. Here are the words that he said. Look at verse 10, last part of the verse. Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. And then he said this, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. That's what he said. David was not impressed by the things that God gave, David was impressed by the God who gave them. 
You see, he marveled that God would allow them to give, to, to give possessions to him and then allow them to give those possessions back to him. Now, we notice that in verse 14. You think about this when you, when you uh, give your offering to the Lord. Sometimes we think, well, I'll give a mine to the Lord, and I might give even more than a tenth. And Lord, aren't you glad? <laughs> but we shouldn't think that way. What we should think is, Lord, this, this, is, this is amazing. You allow me to give what is yours to you. You allow me to give what belongs to you to you, and then you bless me for it. Uh, that, that's amazing. And look, look at verse 14. It says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. Look at verse 16. He says, O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is, and is all thine own. You see, when God gives us things, the ownership does not change. It still belongs to God. So everything that you have is not yours. You're just being loaned that. You're being uh, made a steward of it, but it all belongs to, to the Lord. God gives us in order that he might try our hearts to see what we will do with his gifts. Now we find that in verse 17. Notice what it says. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now I have seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee. And he says, Lord, you take pleasure in this, in us giving to you, if we have an upright heart. So if you give to the Lord with the right heart, then God is pleased. And then when you look and see other people doing the same thing, it makes your heart glad. Now, as a pastor, I, I tithe. I must tithe. If I don't tithe, then I'm going to miss out on a blessing. And that is, the Lord's not going to be pleased. And the Lord sees the, my heart. And if I was stingy, then the Lord wouldn't see an upright heart at all. But if I give with an upright heart, then I can rejoice when I look at the offering and notice that you gave as well with an upright heart. And so that's what David did. He rejoiced that the people gave. All of us need to recognize that God has been very good to us. And all of us need to recognize that God is an awesome God. So this morning, I want us to consider our awesome God. Now, before we do, let's define awesome. You know, have you ever used the word awesome? I'm, I know people use it all the time. I try to use it reservedly because I really believe it should be reserved for special things. Do you ever get a sandwich and somebody says, this is an awesome sandwich? That's a bad use of that word. <laughs> because awesome means extremely impressive and awe-inspiring. I've never eaten a sandwich that's awe-inspiring. <laughs> I mean, it might be good, but it's not awe-inspiring. But God is awe-inspiring. I know it's impossible to, to confine God to an outline. We really can't do that. But to help us to deal with this infinite subject, we're going to consider four areas in which we see the awesomeness of God. Now, the first one is this. We see that God is awesome because we observe His creation. 
His creation is awesome. Now, when we talk about His creation, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, the account of His, cre- of his creation. Now, the account of His creation is found in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, just to read that is, is awesome. I mean, it's awe-inspiring when you read of what God did. Much more so than the, the evolutionary theory that says that things evolved, you know, over a long period of time, starting like they say about 14 billion years ago. It's interesting that in all of recorded history, there has no, been no evolving. You know, from the time that man began, or they have a history of it, there's no evolving. We, there's no half ape, half ape and half man. There's none. And also, in none of the fossil records is there, are there any transitional forms. None. They have found something they thought was, and then they found out later it wasn't. There are no transitional forms. So if, if we really evolved, looks like in the fossil record there would be a transitional form of, of uh, uh, half something and half something, you know, half ape, half man. And they'll try to say that they found something, and they'll find out later it's, it's not that at all. And all the pictures that you see of evolution, uh, those are not pictures from history. Those are pictures from imagination in people's minds. They drew that. So don't be ever, ever be impressed by these pictures of a, a stooped-over hairy ape, you know, that's straightened up and he becomes a man. That's, a, that's an artist's conception. It came from his mind, not from facts. And so evolution is not awe-inspiring. But God's account of creation is. God's creation is awesome. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that day, on day 1, God's, God made the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. And it was the darkness of the water was all over the earth. So here's God makes this ball, and uh, it's without form and void, and in other words, there's no life on it, it's empty, and, but it's covered with water. That's on day one. And then on day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God says, there, therefore, there's day and night. Now, there was day and night before there was a sun, because God made it that way, and God made that original thing that he, that he made, the earth covered with water, and then he said, let there be light. And then he says the evening and the morning were the first day. So that's a 24-hour day. The second day, the Lord says, let there be a firmament. The firmament is an expanse, a place, an area between. And he says, from the waters uh, below to the waters above. And so there's waters on the earth. And then he says, let's separate that and take a firmament and an expanse between and put some of the waters up. And so we believe, I believe, that they were in the form of water vapor, way up in the atmosphere, way up even beyond. And uh, God made that, and he says there, there's a firmament. That, so he, def, he called the firmament heaven. He called the firmament heaven. And then in day three, we see that God did something else. He gathered the waters together. You have this earth covered with water, and he gathers the water together in one place, and the dry land appears. And he calls the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water he calls sea, and he said it's good. And then on that same day, the third day, I mean, the earth has just come up out of the water. And on that same day, he makes all the vegetation, the grass, 
and the, he says the, the grass, the herbs, and the fruit-bearing trees. And not only that, they already had seed in them, and, or fruit on them, and there was seed inside the fruit. So on day three, the Lord uh, gathers the waters together in one place, makes the earth, the dry land appear, and call it earth, and then he uh, fills it full of vegetation. And it's not vegetation that's starting to grow and it gets mature. It's already mature. And so it has the appearance of age. So if you look at an apple tree on that third day of creation, there it is. It's full grown. And maybe if you cut it down, there wouldn't be any growth rings in it. I don't know how if God made it appear that way. Uh, but it's full grown. And uh, there's fruit hanging on it. And the fruit has seed in it already. So what came f- first, the seed or the fruit? Neither one. They came at the same time. What came first, the tree or the, or the apple on the tree? Neither one. They came at the same time. God made them zap. There they were the third day. That's awesome. Then the fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the firmament. So God created the earth. The earth is, earth is there before there's anything out there in the, in the, in the uh, universe. There's no sun, there's no moon, there's no Jupiter, there's no Mars, or no, none of that. There's no constellations, uh, none of that's out there. It's just the earth. God made the earth. That makes me believe that there's only one place, that there's life in the universe, and that's on the earth, because its Genesis account is geocentric. It's all about the earth, and everything that God made is in relation to the earth. And so... And on day four, he said, let there be lights in the firmament. Then he made the sun and the moon and the stars. The greater light to rule the day, that's the sun. The lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon. And then he says, and he made the stars also. Just passing comment. And he made the stars also. Billions and billions and billions of stars. And God just spoke them into existence. And there they are. That is amazing. And God said it's good. And then day five came. And the Lord says, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, and then the fowl that fly in the air. And so on day five, God made all the fishes, the the great sea whales, the great sea monsters, everything that was in the water, God made it, and it was complete, it was living, and it didn't evolve, it didn't go through steps, it was immediately there, fully formed. It was alive, and God made it. And the fowls of the air, all kinds of fowls of the air, he made on that fifth day. And God told the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea to be fruitful and multiply. And that was day five, and God said it was good. Then day six came. Day six. Now, I forgot to comment, but you remember, God made the vegetation before he made the sun. That really messes up scientists who believe in evolution. But God made the vegetation before he made the sun. And then day six, God let, let the earth bring forth, God said, let the earth bring forth abundantly. So there's life in the air, there's life in the water, but there's nothing on the earth as far as animals that we, like we think of as, uh, that are on the earth, not flying things, but other things. And so on day six, God said, let the earth bring, bring forth abundantly living creatures, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. And God did that and said it was good. So immediately, there's a full-grown lion. Immediately, there's a full-grown uh, uh, elephant. Immediately, there are these animals, and uh, they're all over the earth, and God made them, uh, and he said it's very good. And he also made the creeping things. That's all the bugs and... <laughs> 
and uh, you know those things that crawl, the grasshoppers, and he made all those things, and the little animals that creep around. God made all those things. And then he said, let us make man in our image. Now, I remember later, in this past, we'll mention this, but later God tells man what he's supposed to eat. And that is he's supposed to eat the herb and the fruit trees, or the fruit of the fruit trees. Well, they're already there. Because this is day six when God makes man. And God, a couple days before that, on day three, he made all the vegetation. So it's there for him. And when he makes man, there's already food available on the earth. Because at this time, man doesn't eat animals. And so they were vegetarian at that time. And so God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Far different than animals, God made all this. And let them have dominion. And he said, let, and let us make them male and female. So God is the one who determined the two sexes. All this emphasis today on transgender and all these various genders that they try to tell us there are, it's all false and it's all of the devil because the devil always attacks what God does. And so God said, male and female. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And the herb and the fruit of the tree are to be your food. And God looked at everything he had made in all six days, and he said, it's very good. Now, just the fact that God says that of his creation helps us understand why the devils attacks everything about God's creation. God said it's very good. The devil doesn't like anything that God does. But it doesn't matter what they teach you today about evolution. You need to understand that in six literal days, it's the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, six literal days, God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Ephesians, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says exactly that. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So the account of his creation is awesome. I mean, it's all inspiring when you see what God did. But then the observance of his creation is also awesome. I mean, when you observe it, the Bible says it like this in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You look up in the universe, and if you're able to go up higher like some have, and look around and see all that God has made, or if you're able to look in a telescope and see so many things that God has made, it should strike uh, awe in your heart to say, God is awesome. He is such an awesome God. Look how powerful He is. And so the observance of His creation is awesome. But not only what we see up there, but what we see all around us. I mean, you look at yourself. You're awesome. And I don't mean that you're that great, but uh, you know, just the fact that God made you and you have all these capabilities and your brain is, is, is better than any computer. It has more ability than any computer. And God made you so that you can see your eyes are just an amazing thing. And your ears and everything about us is amazing. And so we look around. Then we look at the animals. We look at the creation and the flowers, the plants, the trees, and all of that. It's amazing what God has done. And the variety of food that we have and all these things, the observance of God's creation is amazing. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, The whole earth is full of His glory. And so God's creation 
is awesome. The, the creator God is awesome. Also, his character is awesome. Not only his creation, but his character. There's two main things I want to tell you about his character. First of all, God is good and God is great. God is good. Let's talk about that. What do we know about God that's good? Well, the Bible says he's holy. Isaiah 6, 3, uh, when King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and Seraphim said, Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Holy means set apart, set apart from evil, set apart from anything else. There's nobody like him, nobody. And so God is holy. He's pure. He's true. The Bible, I looked it up in, in the Scripture, and you find true mentioned of several things. Uh, God, the Holy, God the Father is true. God the Son is true. God the Holy Spirit is true. God's Word is true. God's witness is true. God's testimonies are true. God's prophecies are true. And on and on, all these things about the Lord, they're true. What's that mean? God is so good, and He's true. There's nothing false about Him. God is true. God is also love. God is love. The reason God loves is because God is love. That's his being. He is a loving God. God is love. God is also faithful. He never fails. He always keeps his promises, so he's a good God. But he's also a great God. This week in Bible school, we talked about the greatness of God. And we talked about the fact that he, he is so great. He's eternal. That means he never had a beginning and he never had an end. He always has been and always will be. That We can't wrap our minds about that around that, but it's true. God is eternal. He's also unchanging. Uh, Malachi 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, I, I am the Lord and I change not. God never changes. We change. Everything around us changes, but God doesn't change. He was faithful then he'll be faithful now. He'll be faithful in the future. God is, never changes. He is, he is an unchanging God. We also found that he's omnipresent. That means anywhere you go, he is. I've made the statement on many occasions that there's no such thing as a God-forsaken place because God is there. Uh, Jonah found out, that out. In Bible school, one of the lessons about Jonah and Barney and Diana did a good job when they talked about that because Barney got on the computer, he got us some sounds of a, of a storm. And then he made these lights flash on and off. And one of the kids were hearing this story. He said that a storm came up and they started that music. And the kids were, you know, look, looking. They started the, the, the uh, sounds of the storm and the lightning. And then when they threw Jonah overboard, it stopped. And immediately everything stopped. It was very impressive. But what did Jonah find out? You can't get away from the Lord. You know, wherever you go, the Lord's there. You can't hide from God. He's everywhere present. He's also omniscient. That means he knows everything. Psalm 139 says he knows our down-sitting, uprising. He's acquainted with all of our thoughts. He's acquainted with all of our ways. He knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows everything. So God is omniscient. He, he's all-knowing. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. And he knows one other thing, and that is what if. He said, if you would have done this, this would have happened. And so God knows what if. God knows all those things. He's an all-knowing God. He's also omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Jeremiah 32, there is nothing too hard for thee. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. He is omnipotent. So this great God, this awesome God, his character is awesome because he's good and he's great. 
But then there's another thing about God. That is, His control is awesome. His control is awesome. You see, He controls the universe. The Bible says in Colossians 1 verse 17, that before Him all things consist and He and also holds together. Verse 17, and He is before all things and by Him all things consist. Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of, of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty on high. He, uphold, he holds all things by the word of His power. So what keeps the planets from running into each other? What, what makes everything like clockwork? Really, we get that backwards. We shouldn't say something's like clockwork. We should say something is like God's work. Because we set the clocks by, by the universe. We set the clock by the rotation. And we, all of this is from the Lord. And so, why is, that, why is that so predictable? Why is it that we can set our calendars by it and our clocks by it? Because God is in control of everything. He holds everything together. By Him, all things hold together. And He controls everything. So, He controls the universe. He also controls the weather. Now, I like to say it because I'm out a lot and I talk to people in the store. And if it's a rainy day, you'll probably comment on the weather. And I usually say something like this. I'm so so glad that God's in charge of the weather. If he wasn't and we were, we'd be fighting over it. (laughs) Because you'd want water for your garden one day and I'd want sunshine. You know, we'd be fighting over it. God's in charge of the weather. You see, he controls the weather. Psalm 148 uh, tells us that. It says in verse 8, Fire and hail, snow snow and vapor, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. And 147, Psalm 147, verse 15 says this, He sendeth forth uh, his commandment upon the earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causeth his wind to blow and the waters flow. And the Bible says that the clouds are the dust of his feet. So when the clouds are going, you say, well, the Lord's been here. It's the dust of his feet. He controls the weather. God controls all that. So he controls the universe. He controls the weather. He also controls circumstances. So that he can say in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We hear some bad news, something happened, and it might be sad and all that, but we know this. God knows what he's doing. And God can control that, does control that. And he gives men freedom He gives us free will, and because he gives us free will, he allows us to make choices, and sometimes we make choices that are wrong, and it hurts people. And God gave us a choice. He doesn't want robots to love him. He wants people to love him because they have a free will to do that. And so God allows us to make choices. But God is so big, he can control things and work those things together to accomplish his will. So God controls circumstances. God also controls history. God controls history. 
The Bible says in Daniel chapter 5, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In other words, he never quits reigning. He never quits being in control. He controls history. Daniel 4, verse 35, he says, He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And Daniel 5, verse 21 says, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. Yes, he sets up kings and takes them down. He sets up rulers and takes them down. God controls history, but that's not all God controls. He controls the universe, he controls the weather, he controls circumstances, he controls history, but he also controls the future. I'm glad of that. God controls the future. That means I can know what's happening in the future because God tells me. And nobody's going to thwart God's plan. He's going to accomplish what he said. And so I know that the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, and that's coming because the Bible tells us that. And that's in the future. I know that's going to happen. I know if it would happen right now, all of a sudden I would be saying something and all of a sudden I'd be gone. And so would you. Hopefully all of you would be gone. If one person here doesn't know Jesus, you'd be sitting here wondering, what happened? Where'd they go? And then all of a sudden you'd realize where they go and you would be scared. But God knows that. God knows that after the tribulation period, or after the rapture of the church, there's going to be a tribulation period. God knows that he's going to send 21 judgments. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be sealed judgments, trumpet judgments, and vile judgments. And there'll be seven of those. And God knows that. He tells us all about it. That's in the future. We know that's going to happen because God has said it's going to happen. After that tribulation period, we know that Jesus, who has left, taken us to heaven, he's coming back with us. And he's coming back to destroy his enemies and rule, and he's going to rule on this earth for 1,000 years, and we who know Jesus are going to rule and reign with him. We know that, 1,000 years. And the Bible tells us that. Then we know at the end of that 1,000 years that the Lord is going to destroy the heaven and the earth and make a brand new one, and uh, we know that's true, and there's going to be the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and it's going to have golden streets and gates of pearl and walls of jasper and all of that and a river running out of, the, out of the city. We know all that because God tells us that's all in the future, but God determines and controls the future. So we can take consolation in that, that God controls. So his control is awesome. I mean, the fact that he's in charge and control, that's awesome. But then there's a final thing I think that's awesome, maybe more than all of these. And that is, his cross is awesome. His cross is awesome. The plan of the cross is awesome. Because the Bible says in in Revelation 13, verse 8, that the Lamb, that's Jesus, was slain from the foundation of the earth. That means when God laid the foundation of the earth that we studied a little while ago in Genesis chapter 1, when God said, God said that he made the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And when we know that, that when that happened, uh, at that time, God already knew what he was going to do. Sin hadn't happened yet, but God knew it would because he knows everything. And so he planned for a solution before the problem ever came. And that's amazing. That's awesome that God would, would do that. And he, the, cross, the plan of the cross is awesome. The provisions of the cross are awesome. What does God provide from the cross? Well, from the cross, at the cross, Jesus provided salvation for us because he paid the sin debt on the cross. And we know what happened on the cross of Calvary. God the Father judged God the Son for us. 
All of our sin was laid on Jesus, and God the Father judged Jesus for us. And he paid that price completely. And in the end, at right before he died, he said those wonderful words, it's finished. That means it's all paid for. That means he looked in, in the future and he saw all of us. And he saw everyone in the past and in the future. And he said, all their sin was laid on me and I paid it all. I paid it completely. It's finished. And then they put him in the grave and third day later, third day he rose from the grave victorious as proof that it was all paid for and salvation available was available. So the provision of the cross was the sin debt was paid. Forgiveness was available. Justification was available. Salvation was available because of the cross. But not only the provision of the cross, but the possibility of the cross. You see, the possibility of the cross is that we can take advantage of that. And we can trust the Lord as our Savior. And we can be saved. Salvation is available, but we can be saved. That's a possibility. You can be saved. And all of us have taken that possibility Trusted Jesus as our Savior, and we know Him, and He's forgiven us. So forgiveness is available, and we can be forgiven. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, you have been. Justified, that means declared righteous. God looks at us and says, I declare you righteous. Your husband or wife says, what? (laughs) I know problems. (laughs) And the Lord says, no, I paid for that. So in my eyes, you're justified. You're righteous. I declare you to be righteous because all the sin's paid for. And so Jesus allows us to be justified. He also allows us to be adopted. So the possibility of the cross is we trust Jesus as our Savior. We get all this and we get adopted into the family of God and we're no longer children of the devil. We're children of the Lord. And we're sure a new heaven, a new home, and a new, new body. And that's going to be in the future. We're assured of that. It's all involved. Because, it's all there because of the cross. And we're assured of eternity serving the Lord forever and ever and ever. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, and my serv- and servants shall serve him. And we're going to be servants of the Lord. Have you ever wondered what we're going to do throughout all eternity? We're not going to float around on ca- clouds and strum a harp. But we're going to be doing something. I don't know all that we're going to do. But we're going to be serving an almighty God who's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-sufficient and able to do everything. And God has all kinds of plans for us. And I'll guarantee you're going to enjoy it. We're going to enjoy it. And we'll serve the Lord forever and ever and ever. I don't know what we'll do, but God knows. And he says, that's coming. And all of that is awesome. Now, knowing that to be true, Is it any surprise that Satan is opposed to God? You see, he has wanted to be like God from the beginning, but he cannot. He he wants to be awesome, but he is not. Satan is not awesome. Instead of being awesome, he's awful. He's not awesome. He's awful. He has not and cannot create anything. God's awesome in his creation. Satan can't create anything. He never has. God's awesome in his character. Satan's character is that of he's a liar and he's a thief and he's a counterfeiter and he's a destroyer and he's a loser. While God is good, Satan is evil. 
While God is great, he's the de- Satan is the defeated foe who flees when we just mention the name of Jesus. He is not everywhere present. He is not all-knowing, and he's not all-powerful. You see, he is not awesome. His control is limited. God's control is, limit, is, is awesome, but, God's, but Satan's control is limited so that he cannot do anything without God's permission. He cannot control the universe. He cannot control the weather. He cannot control circumstances. He cannot control history. He cannot control the future. Sometimes he controls weather, but only when God gives him permission to. So all of it's by the permission of God. And the cross, the cross is awesome because of of what the Lord did bear. But the cross is not awesome to Satan. The cross was where he was defeated by Jesus and was doomed forever. Because all of this, considering all this, how foolish it is for anybody to choose to follow the devil. I mean, why would you follow a loser? Why would you follow somebody like him? He will lead you to hell and to the lake of fire where he's going to burn himself, not in hell, but in the lake of fire. Because the Bible says hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So the final abode of the lost is the lake of fire, and that's where Satan is, will be. And you'll burn forever and ever and ever. Why follow anybody like this? When we consider God's creation, God's character, God's control, and God's cross, all the material things of this life will seem insignificant. But sometimes that's not true. Sometimes for the Christian, it's not that way. Sometimes we feel that our dedication, our enthusiasm for the Lord is cooling off. And almost every time that you feel that way, if you're becoming cooled off as a Christian, not so enthusiastic about the Lord, it's because the wrong thing is awesome to you. The world and all that it offers is becoming awesome. All the pleasures of the world, all the things of the world, all the sin of the world becomes awesome in the minds of somebody who's drifting away from the Lord. But if we keep our hearts right and we realize that our God is an awesome God, I believe it will keep us where we we are uh, not cooled off, but we're enthusiastic about the Lord because He is an awesome God, and He never changes. He always will be. So God help us to do like the song says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And then here's the key. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May God help us to always consider our God an awesome God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for reminding us of who you are. You are so great, Lord. I pray that we might be aware of that all the time. And Lord, when we feel like we don't want to serve the Lord... We don't want to read our Bibles. We don't want to pray. Help us to realize that we're looking on the wrong thing. And we're thinking the things of this world are more awesome than you are. But Lord, I ask that we might reserve the term awesome.
to speak of something that really is. And we can never lose if we refer to you that way. So pray, pray, Lord, that you might help us as Christians to be dedicated, to be loving you, to serving you, and always stand in awe of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.